Morning. Morning. Welcome. I'm Glyn. I'm one of the leaders of the church here. I want to thank Pat for reading. She did a great job. And um, you might have noticed that it wasn't the normal version of the Bible. So if you kind of picked up one of the church Bibles, or, or, or we usually use the NIV, I purposefully chosen the message version today because, well, basically it's a little bit less in your face. You, you know, you saw that, you laughed a little bit as, it, as we went through the, um, the, the reading. Um, I think I, I wanted to use the message because it's a bit more uh, contemporary. The words used um, are not quite as forceful, we might say, as some of the other translations. Last week, Dave brought us a brilliant message about the hope we have in Jesus. Did you notice that he managed to avoid mentioning Peter all the way through? (laughs) We had a good laugh about that later. What he did bring, amongst lots of other things, was that our hope in Jesus and Jesus alone is what it's all about. He exhorted those who have not taken that step to follow Jesus. And, uh, wanted, and maybe you needed time to think about that. And I just wanted to bring that again this morning. It was so, it's so important for us that if you're not a believer, if you're not a believer online, that that actually is the first step to believe in Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus. And Roger used to use the ABC method. He used to say, accept the things that you've done wrong, and act, or acknowledge the things that you've done wrong. He used to say, believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and then commit to following him for the rest of your lives. That's all you need to do. It's simple. So if that's you today, pray that prayer, please. Follow Jesus. And if you've done that, and if you did it last week, um, Dave also exhorted us to contact someone, tell somebody, tell somebody that you've done that today, tell someone you did it last week, whatever it is. Um, we would love to hear from you. Please send, you know, a message to me, uh, elders, I say me, the, it's elders, all of, all of us elders at Dorchester Community Church or the phone number. Uh, you can ring and you'll get through to Liz and then she will get somebody to call you, call you back. Um, it's so important to make that stand and say, I've done it. I've done that. And I believe I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. So today we move on. We move from that hope to humility. I think it's a natural progression as Peter, in his pithy way, I mean, I've heard said, you know, the Peter... uh, Letters that are quite short are like gospels in themselves. They put so much in. In his pithy way, he shows us how to live our, our, our lives as new Christians. So we move on from giving our lives to Jesus to how do we live our lives. Well, actually, before we even go any further, I'll tell you and you can go home now. Um, humility. We need to live our lives in humility and be humble of heart. The first half of that passage that Pat read to us is about living in the world. He's starting to challenge our our worldview. He's saying that once you're a Christian, we're citizens of heaven. We're living in this alien world so that we may show what the God who made the world wants us to be like. 
We are the thing that people look at. And if we're living just like the rest of the world, what does that show? It shows nothing, yeah? What's the point in religion? What's the point in the church? No, we need to live differently. And that's what the rest of this passage from 1 Peter 2 is working through. I'm going to read some of it again. You must live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. And then they will be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Make the master proud of you by being good citizens. Respect authority, whatever their level. They're God's emissaries for keeping order. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Uh, you know, we, even when we look at government, we, we, sometimes we, I think we're shocked at what comes out of it. But our scriptures tell us we need to respect these people because they are there by God's appointment. Exercise your freedom by serving God, not by breaking rules. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. Love your spiritual family, revere God, and respect government. That's how we're supposed to be day to day. I think we are good. I think we all think, oh, it's, the words are just not coming out. I think we all think we're good people, don't we? Does that make sense? Sorry. Yeah? Inside, we all think we're good people, don't we? But what point Peter is pointing to here is saying, actually, look, look at the Ten Commandments. Look at, look at the bar that Jesus sets. Look at the bar that the Bible sets. And, and none of us can make it apart from through Jesus. Live our lives to a high standard. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we do that, not only will people want to be a part of us, the church, but Jesus and the Father will be proud of who we are for living that godly life. A life that does not puff up ourselves, but instead gives all the glory to Jesus, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I was researching this message, I found in the NIV version 54 references to the word boast and another 30 or so for things like, you know, boasting and boasts and boasted and, you know, all those. So almost 100 references to boasting and how that actually is a really bad thing. I think we probably knew that anyway, do you reckon? But we're called to be humble. And the point I'm trying to make is that we're called to... Humility. We're called to be humble of spirit, and there are just as many references to those words. It's an important point that Jesus is trying to get across. Yes, we must have a positive self-worth, a positive self-image, but that needs to be grounded in who we are in Christ, not, we can, not what we can do or we can be in our own strength. It's something that I know I struggled with, especially in the workplace. You know, if you don't promote yourself, you never get promotion or a pay rise or a... Don't you think? Yeah? But God says, let me do all of that, and you concentrate on being a good citizen. Now, that's quite a challenge. And I reckon I failed, honestly, in the workplace, in that. But it's in family 
where we're molded to be more, more like Jesus. That may not have been true for you. You may have had an awful start to life in your family or even not have a family. Might I say to you that that was not God's plan for you? God didn't want that to happen. He only wants the best for you. But we live in this fallen world that bad things happen. And it seems to me that family can be one of the most broken places. But there is hope. In Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, it says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. And when he talks about this, he's something, sometimes talking about fostering or adoption, but he's also talking about being adopted into his family, the church. In Ephesians 1 to 5, he says that he predestined us. That means he, he planned it before the beginning of time. He predestined us for adoption into sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, he chose us to bring us into his family in order to make us whole and free. And that family is his church. As Jesus is the head of that church and church as his bride, father and mother, if you like. It's there that people really know you. It's in family where we get the chips on our shoulders knocked off, where we're refined to be more like Jesus. You know, I always try and look for a good joke, and I've really struggled with this one, and the only one I can come up with is not PC, but hey, let's do it anyway. So you probably know the story that, um, you know, you, you remember the story from the beginning of Genesis, you know, God made Adam... And then he made Eve. Well, when he made Adam, you know, the story goes, um, uh, God actually says, well, it's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to, I need to make you someone to be with. And God's, and, and, but God said, you know, it's going to (laughs) cost. You know, you know the story already. He says, it's going to cost, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam goes, oh. What do I get for a rib? <laughs> yeah, you've probably all heard it before. Rubbish. And not PC at all. So forgive me, ladies. <clears throat> we come on to what is quite a controversial, contentious passage. We come to the section on wives and husbands in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. We come to the bit that's about wives and husbands um, who are the two people who, who before God have to nurture the family to be good citizens. There are two principles that come out of this passage. First, the first one is implicit. It implies that marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, of course, our current legal and social climate says something very different. But actually, right through the Bible, it, it talks about um, that marriage, that, that what marriage means is between a man and a woman. Now, I'm not going to explore that today, 
But it is important to, that, that, that you know we're starting from that point. So if you can understand what I'm carrying on with, we have to start from that position. Whether you agree or not, we've got to work from there. The second is that God has designed us for male headship. That will be the focus of the rest of today's message. It's a contentious passage in today's society, and I'm not going to gloss over the difficulty in it. What you, you know, in, in our society that promotes anything goes, and what you believe is fine and acceptable to all. But our Bible, if we're actually going to believe in it, says some things that we need to live our lives by, and this is one of them, I believe, and I'll explain it more as we go through. There has rightly been a backlash against the male-dominated authoritarian society where women have not been allowed the freedoms that men have had. They have all too often been pushed down, made to feel small and worthless, and that is all wrong and not biblical. That's not what we read in the Bible, and it's certainly not how men should behave. So we start from there, yeah? Now, Jesus was quite a reformer. He had women in his group that was unheard of for that time. He purposefully chose women, a woman, the woman at the well, to be the first person who he, who he told he was the son of God. That was the first person. He rebuked the disciples because they complained when Mary anointed him with expensive perfume. He protected the woman from being stoned because of adultery. All these things were against what was normal for that day. He raised up women <clears throat> to a new level, but he didn't choose a woman to be one of the 12. I believe that's another pointer to the controversial issue of male headship. Jesus had no problem in challenging authority or the social norms, but he never took it that far. And I think we have to ask why. I'm going to reread that passage from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. The same goes for you, wives. Be good wives to your husband, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are, excuse me, <clears throat> indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. What matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewellery you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty. Be gentle, gracious, kind that God delights in. The holy women of old were beautiful before God in that way and were good, loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah, for instance, taking care of Abraham would address him as my dear husband. You'll be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same, unanxious and unintimidated. The same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honour them, delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages, but in the new life of God's grace, your equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. Let's take that little phrase at the beginning. <clears throat> the same goes for you wives. This is 
pointing us back to the previous passage, that we need to accept the authority of leaders, governments, teachers with humility. We need to start there. Because God put them in the authority. And that's what scripture says in Titus 3 verse 1. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authority, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. We all must accept some kind of authority over us. And the Bible, we believe, clearly teaches that there is that, that, that this points us to male headship in the family and the church. Why do I believe that? Well, when we look at the Bible passages, we try, when we're trying to figure this out, do we take those, those, those passages literally, or do we need to interpret this for today's society and time? Well, we do several things. We see if the Bible teaches the same thing in different books, and even better, with different authors. You know, you could easily say, well, that's just Paul, he's difficult, yeah? He doesn't like it um, because Paul wrote many of the letters in, in the New Testament. You know, Paul talks about women needing to cover their heads in church and men don't need to. But we only see that in one section of 1, of 1 Corinthians. And so therefore, he's just talking to the Corinthian church at that time because it was an issue for them in their society. Women who didn't cover their heads were seen to be prostitutes. So it makes sense for them to cover their heads in church. So we see this issue of male headship in several different books. It starts in Genesis 1, verses 27. It talks about how God made male and female in his own image. He made them. And inferred from that is an equality, yeah? This is often used to argue complete equality. But then when we jump into Genesis 2, and it, Genesis 2 is kind of a more detailed version of Genesis 1, we see a different story. God made man first, and then Moses, the author. Sorry. And then Moses, the author. I'll try and get my intonation right. <laughs> Lord. He talks about how God said it was not good for man to be alone, just as I mentioned earlier. That they needed, so he made a woman to be a helper or companion, as it says in some different versions. Anyone reading the Old Testament sees a mainly man-dominated society with some notable exceptions like Deborah the judge. This theme is developed in Titus, Ephesians, and in our passage in 1 Peter. So we've got... Several authors of books written at different times across, across time, all pointing to a similar thing. For me, that tells me that it's something that we should take, and, should take note of, not something that is subject to interpretation, if you like. Something that we can be sure that God wants us to know and accept. Let's get back to that passage. Verse 2 goes on to develop the idea that if a husband is not a Christian, they will be captivated by your life and holiness by caring and supporting him. Many of the other translations, which is why I've avoided it, use the word submit. 
to your husbands. And unfortunately, this brings a very negative connotation, and I think sadly misunderstood. It doesn't mean that women, women should be a doormat or subject to being told what to do all the time. I think it's significant that Eugene Peterson, when he translated it, goes on to use the words that you'd be true daughters of Sarah if you are the same humble person, unanxious and unintimidated. In other words, you can say what you feel. You don't feel pushed down. You're unequal from that perspective. I don't know about you, but when I look around here, I see several women that embody that unanxious, unintimidated idea. Good, godly women who are not afraid to say what they feel about in a situation. And that's as it should be. But maybe not all the time. Are you listening to? I think it's also helpful to mention what it says in my Bible study notes. They're often so good at clarifying. If you've not got one of these Bibles that's, got, that's a study Bible and got some more stuff in it, can I encourage you to get one? They're so useful. What it says in mine, uh, it says in the notes section, it says, the Bible does not say that women should be submissive to all men, just to their husbands. And that cross-reference to the Ephesian passage that we're going to move on to in a minute. As we dig deeper into how husbands should treat their wives, I hope you women listening can see that godly submission is not onerous or belittling, but rather an acceptance that these men would do anything to help you achieve what both you believed and was right. That if it comes from humility, then we see an equality and a building up of both. So as we come to the end of this particular passage, it it, it brings it around to the husbands. It says, um, The same goes for you, husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them, delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages. But in the new life of God's grace, your equals. Treat your wives then as equals, so that your prayers don't run aground. Interesting, just a little bit right at the end. Treat them as equals unless your prayers run aground. So we need to, uh, we need to be wary as men that we are honoring and supporting and loving and doing everything we possibly can to um, love your neighbor as yourself and your neighbor can be your wife as well as it can be your neighbor next door. Um, because if we don't, it creates a barrier to, to our prayers being going through to God. Now, I'm not sure I can call that a doctrine. I think that would be wrong. I, I, you know, our standing is always in Christ through the cross, and our way is clear to God because of what he did when, we've, when we submit ourselves to him in praying those prayers we talked about at the beginning. But I do take it as a warning that when we treat anyone badly, especially our wives, that God's watching. And he will want us to say sorry, to make that way clear again. So let's look into Ephesians. I don't know where we've got that passage just coming up. Yeah, here we go. 
So it starts, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So it takes us a whole level deeper than that passage from Peter. Um, It takes the emphasis away from what wives need to do, but actually on what husbands need to do. But it starts with submit to one another. That's the nub of the matter. If a husband and wife submit to one another, then all will be well. As we read further down the passage, ignoring the wives' bits, we we see that husbands need to do everything to support their wives, just like Jesus did for all of us. That means, guys, we need to be prepared to die for our wives. It, It kind of has an echo of when we become Christians, we need to die to self. And I think there's a very real connection there. When we're married, we become one flesh, according to Genesis, Mark, Matthew, and later on in that Ephesians passage. While that may be true, I find that working out of that is much harder than what the Bible has to say. 20 years ago, so Tori said to me, so... 20 years ago, Tori said to me, you know what, I can't go on like this. It was probably a bit longer than that. She doesn't know I'm saying this, by the way. We we were pulling apart, and I was not being a good husband. I had all my priorities wrong. I was working 100-hour weeks and doing very well in the workplace. And I told myself that I was doing it all for the family. That that pain of of working so hard, of pushing so hard and doing all of that, that pain was worth it because it it supported the family. And Tori said that day, it's not worth it. It wasn't. She said, and I don't know what I said at the time. She can probably remember herself. I probably got angry because it was what I felt I was doing was right. But what she said didn't, didn't just bounce off my head. It went straight into my heart. And I knew from that day I had to change. It's been a long journey, and I still get it wrong an awful lot. But I try, and she knows that I try. And I try to listen most of the time. And we have our ups and our downs. What I'm trying to say is that we have to die to ourselves, just like we need to do before Jesus. We have to die to ourselves in our marriage relationships. I don't mean to become a doormat. I mean to love and to cherish and to honor and support and to do anything that will build up our marriage partners. And that goes both ways. God never said it was going to be easy. 
He just said, I'll be there with you. Is it easy? Those of you who are married? It's not, is it? In time, I gave up that job, and I found work that didn't take me away all the time. I started the journey of supporting her the way that we're called to in the Bible. It's an ongoing journey. And we talk about it, and we try and work it out. When Jesus calls us, we respond to it, and that is the start of a journey to be, of becoming more like him, the perfect one. If you're new on that journey, like we talked about at the beginning today, or if you've been on it for 50 or 60 years, God is still refining us. I find that as soon as one thing seems to be sorted, it becomes apparent that there are other things that need to be dealt with. Is that how you find it? It feels like, you know, there's all this stuff needs to be dealt with, and then you kind of think, whew, great. And then a day or two later, you suddenly realize, oh, oh, that's not so good. I didn't deal with that very well. Things that I never realized, things that just seem to come up. But it's all too often my wife and my kids knew all the time. But they've got the grace and what it talks about in that Peter passage, the grace to walk with it and carry it for time until God breaks through and makes the changes. Because actually, ultimately, it's God that makes the changes in people. They, you know, they need to want to change, but God can make those changes. Um, we have to be open to it. But there's a time in all of those things. It's when we're at home and our guard is down that the bad stuff comes out. Well, it is for me, anyway. We're, we're normally more aware of how we should be when we're with our friends or our work colleagues and acquaintances. But at home, it just, you know, you kind of relax, and the stuff comes out that you kind of wish you'd never said so often. Yeah? Does all that make sense? I seem to have stunned you to silence. As I was preparing this message and praying for it, I felt that there would be someone here who this has spoken to your heart. I very rarely do this, so I think it must be of God. If that's you, I'd love to pray for you after the service. We're going to have a time of praise and reflection, as Martin's mentioned. You might just want to sit and let the words wash over you and let God minister to you. Or you might want someone to pray with you. I'd be very honoured to do that. I want to end today with a call, with a prayer. A prayer for godly marriages. So let's pray. Father God, I love it when you go ahead and you speak to us, and you plan things ahead of us. And I thank you that today you've gone ahead and you've spoken into people's hearts and made them open to what you've been saying today. Lord, I ask that you would bless every marriage here and online, uh, people that are hearing this. Uh, It can be a difficult message. It's one that we stand on as a church here. 
Father, I pray for blessings on each of the marriages here. Jesus, would you come and touch people's hearts? That husbands and wives can be reconciled, that their relationships can be healed. And Jesus, we know we get it wrong every day and we just want to say sorry for all that we've got wrong and ask your forgiveness and come and heal us so that we might be more like you. Amen.